Hey everyone, welcome to Here Arizona. I'm senior producer Scott Bork. In light of the recent developments in Afghanistan, we wanted to create a series that talks about the issues facing Arizona's half-million-strong veteran community. Here Arizona is, first and foremost, a solutions journalism podcast. We not only identify the issues, but work to find the solutions that are actually working to solve those issues, and to empower you, the listener, to act. We're also a community journalism podcast. We try to actively engage with the communities we cover and let them tell their stories through us. When our executive producer, Linda Pastore, got the idea to create this veteran series, she came to me specifically. I'm actually a member of the veteran community. I served in the Navy from 2009 to 2014 and completed a deployment to Afghanistan in 2013. I believe one key aspect of good community journalism is involving members of that community in the work. I'm also acutely aware of some of the lesser reported issues veterans are facing. This podcast won't get into the gory details of combat, but instead focus on the everyday aspects of military life that make it difficult for some veterans to adapt to society once they're out of the service. If there's one thing all veterans have in common, it's that they served in the military. I'm really looking forward to sharing these stories with you. You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. From ABC. This is World News Tonight, Sunday. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. Sunday, October 7, 2001. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the U.S. was out for blood. Congress gave then-President Bush near-unanimous consent to launch the global war on terror. Almost 10 years later, under the war's second president, Barack Obama... Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. Another 10 years after that, 20 years after the 9-11 attacks, four presidents, another war in Iraq... More than 7,000 American troops killed, more than 100,000 enemy combatants killed, and untold numbers of civilians killed. It does appear now that America's longest war in Afghanistan has ended. Today, with the conclusion of the largest non-combatant airlift in American history. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. They fired in celebration and looked over the spoils the Americans left behind. The Taliban are back in power in Afghanistan. And now, there are 4.2 million Gulf War-era veterans, men and women who served from 1990 to present. They make up about 41% of the American veteran population, but by 2040, they'll make up well over 60%. There are also millions of veterans from the Vietnam War. It seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. The Korean War, which ended in 1953, and still some remaining veterans from World War II, 
a lot of whom are well over a hundred years old. The scene of an unforgettable ceremony, marking the complete and formal surrender of Japan. In the Bay of Tokyo, Altogether, people who served from World War II through Vietnam make up about 40% of the veteran population. And then there are the Cold War era peacetime veterans too. They seldom saw combat, but faced plenty of tension in Europe. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? They make up about the last 20% of remaining veterans. It's really difficult for someone who has not experienced the military to understand what it's like. About 1% of the national population serve in the military, so the general public is prone to misunderstanding the issues and needs that service members have when they return. I'm Dr. Michael Casavantes. Uh, I've been teaching here at ASU for almost 31 years now. Casavantes, a Vietnam veteran, teaches classes on war and media, both from a historical and from a sociological perspective. The public, he says, gets their understanding of the military from what they see on film, on the news, or in books. The media, the way the media, and I, I'm talking not only the press, but also Hollywood, the way they depict soldiers, it's, it, it's either the kind of, uh, of psychopath that uh, Sergeant Barnes was in Platoon, or the stalwart, stoic hero like John Wayne in Sands of Emo Jima. Reality, though, is a little different. I enjoyed, for the most part, my two years, 10 months, and 17 days. Uh, but it was silly things like, you know, we had a major philosophical difference on what a proper mustache should look like when I was in the Army. If you watch most news stories or movies about the military, the focus is on the combat. The news is the news, and in, in spite of all the progress we've made, the old if it bleeds, it leads is still the go-to way to set up a newscast. So the public gets the idea that most issues veterans face are related directly to combat. Mental health disorders, physical injury, addiction, homelessness. How can someone who spent five years as an army personnel clerk or a Navy radar technician, people who never had to deal with improvised explosive devices or ground combat, have a service-connected disability? Why do they still come home with problems? Some members of the military community break it down like this. 1% of Americans serve in the military. 1% of those in the military serve in a combat arms position like the infantry. About 10% of those in combat arms actually engage in combat. So if so few veterans actually saw combat, why do so many come back with disabilities, mental health issues, and difficulty adapting to civilian life? Why are those issues severe enough to require an entire federal department, the VA, and the work of hundreds of nonprofits? This series is about some of the issues all veterans face when they're discharged. Here Arizona wants to give listeners a good idea of some of what happens to all service members when they're in the service, regardless of whether or not they deploy or see combat. And to do that, this episode will look into the one thing they all have in common, time in the military. 
But first... Support for Here Arizona comes from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust, which seeks to help people in need, especially women, children, and families, to protect animals and nature, to enrich community life in the metropolitan area of Indianapolis and Phoenix, and from listeners like you. Thank you. I was not good at high school. In that, not that I was dumb or anything, I just didn't care. School isn't geared towards everybody as as much as they try. There's a lot of great teachers and everything in this in education doing their best, but I didn't apply myself. I hated school. I thought it was mundane. It was all popularity contests, and so I didn't try very hard. And my prospects for colleges were bleak or expensive. Meet Dan Bannock. He graduated high school in 2008, but didn't have any plans for what to do after. My mom said, you're paying rent or you're going to school. And I thought, if I'm going to pay rent, I might as well move out because my mom's not going to let me do the things a 19-year-old wants to do. I'm not going to be able to have girls over. I'm not going to be able to have my friends over. You know, she's got a watchful eye on everything. She won't let me drink and party and do what 19-year-old guys want to do. And so eventually it got to the point where I was going to community college across the street and not showing up for classes. You know, I was just an undisciplined 19-year-old kid. After losing his job in a grocery store, he found himself sitting at home, unemployed, watching the military channel, hearing stories of young men proving themselves in combat. That inspired him in a way. Well, I think everybody who joins the Marines in particular is at least okay with the idea of being in a firefighter, being in combat. Most young men who join the Marines probably kind of want that. I feel like I did. I wanted to join the infantry. I scored a 77 on the ASVAB uh, with uh, high marks in like electrical and mechanical. The ASVAB, or the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, is the career aptitude test used to place applicants into career fields. It's scored on a percentile basis, so 77 is pretty good. So they laid out a couple options, and one of them was 5900 was the option code, and that puts you in aviation. And so I ended up becoming an aircraft avionics technician. So I fixed, I fixed gizmos on planes. He left for recruit training in January of 2009. Now, ordinarily as a journalist, I'd be hesitant to use the word indoctrination. It's a loaded word with a strong negative connotation. The only reason I'm using it here is because the military uses it to describe its own process. Listen to the Marine Corps Drill Instructor's Creed, which the drill instructors recite before training a platoon. All branches of the military use the word indoctrination to describe the process of decivilianizing members. In Marine Corps training, for instance, recruits aren't even allowed to use pronouns to refer to themselves. So you don't say, I have to go to the bathroom. You say, this recruit has to use the head. There is no I, there is no we, it's this recruit, these recruits, things like that. And that is to get rid of the individuality, the individualism 
trying to make it so there is no self, there is only the unit. Another example is this scene from the Stanley Kubrick film Full Metal Jacket. Sir, the private said no, sir, sir! Are you little maggots? You make me want to vomit! Now you do love the Virgin Mary, don't you? Sir, negative, sir! Private Joker, are you trying to offend me? Sir, negative, sir! Sir, the private believes that any answer he gives will be wrong, and the senior drill instructor will beat him harder if he reverses himself, sir! And when you go into the military, it's what I call a radical resocialization. I spoke with a professional psychologist who deals exclusively with veterans. I'm Dr. Shauna Springer, known as Doc Springer in the military and veteran population. I've spent the last 10 plus years in the trenches of mental warfare with our nation's warfighters and first responders. And when I say that, I don't mean just around combat trauma. I actually mean around many of the other things besides combat trauma that is really the hidden pain that people I serve are encountering. The experience is immersive. Every second of the day, every minute detail, how you stand, how you speak, how your underwear is folded, and how it is supposed to be stored in your locker down to the quarter inch is regimented and structured. Every time I say ready, move it should be like an explosion. Do you understand? Yes, sir! It's an important part of the process. They try to dehumanize you and strip you of your individuality. So the first couple of days, they're just... It's, it's a shock. It's shock and awe. They just are screaming, they're yelling, they're loud, it's disorienting. Purposefully loud, purposefully disorienting. They're making a spectacle out of anyone who stands out. They're making a spectacle out of the kids who are trying their hardest not to stand out. We had a kid with an afro from a, you know, a white guy with an afro, I should specify, uh, from the Bay Area, California, and he was just getting it from every end. Any chance a drill instructor had, you know, he showed up with a tie-dye t-shirt and every drill instructor locked in on him and was screaming in his face. He was screaming, I sir, back as loud as he could. You know, you are created to be somebody who can serve and put your own needs aside. Um, and so it's necessary to often change kind of the norms and the expectations when you become a military service member after being a civilian. Being part of a bigger whole and making sacrifices in the service of a common mission and overcoming sometimes a natural instinct to not be aggressive these are all things that we need to train our warfighters to become in order to fill their roles. That's not bad. That's a normal, healthy thing. That's part of why we have one of the greatest fighting forces. Each branch does things a little differently. The Navy emphasizes shipboard firefighting and navigation over long hikes. The Air Force calls basic training platoons flights. But the overall goal is the same. Take someone who was probably sitting on the couch eating potato chips and playing video games last month and turn them into a professional member of the armed forces. They're really good at it. That's the whole point. A strong military depends on it. Getting screamed at, they're breaking you down to the level they want everyone at. Because the whole thing with boot camp is they break everyone down. They get rid of all egos, all individuals, and they make you a team. They make you a unit and they build you back up as a unit. There's no there's no quarterback in the military. There's no star running back. It's a it's a whole team. 
So you can't you can't be the guy. Everyone learns that they are nothing without each other. After finishing recruit training, a successful graduate is like an entirely different person. Well, the very first thing everyone says is, wow, you're skinny and you stand up really straight. And, that, you know, that's the first thing people notice is how much weight everyone loses. Months of hardcore physical activity will do that to you. Just eating a ball of rice and mystery meat for lunch every day. Uh, and then, you know, you're running everywhere you go. So the very first impression people get is nice uniform, you lost weight, you stand up so straight, blah, blah, blah. After that, it's like, you know, if someone talks to you, you're so used to standing at parade rest anytime you talk to anybody. Parade rest is the position you're supposed to stand in when you're addressing a superior. And as a recruit, everyone is your superior. You're talking about going to the dentist and you're, yes, sir, affirmative, sir, you know, negative, sir, like all that. So, you know, my mom was like, hey, like, oh, I love you. And I'm standing at parade rest when she's trying to put her arms around me. <laughs> you know, I'm saying yes, ma'am to my mom. Uh, that went away, but, uh, you know, that was what it was the very first time I saw them in 13 weeks. This can sometimes permanently change someone's entire personality and identity. It softens over the years, but even eight years after getting out, Dan and most veterans retain some aspects of this new identity. I still sir and ma'am people, like I'm a bartender now. So if someone sits down at my bar, I'm like, hey, sir, what can I get you? Or, hey, good afternoon, ma'am, what can I do for you? And some people notice that, and some, you know, some people think it's just me doing my job, and some people are like, oh yeah, that's how he talks a lot. These traits are great for having a combat effective military and most of them benefit veterans when transitioning to civilian life, especially in the workforce. But some are uniquely military and really don't fit in well with the civilian world. And a lot of my friends when I came home noticed that I had a shorter temper and I was a little less empathetic to real world problems. And that's a, that's a big thing that, that messes up a lot of guys later on down the line. Is Can you just, elaborate on that a little bit? Well, understanding that the military isn't the real world and like, all right, one example. After getting out of the Marines in 2013, Dan moved in with some friends in Flagstaff. One day, one of his new roommates fell off her bike. And, you know, she scraped her leg pretty bad. And, you know, I'd been out of the Marine Corps for maybe a month at that time. And the first thing out of my stupid mouth was, oh, you want to talk to my buddy Colin who lost his legs in Afghanistan? Tell him about your boo-boo. And, you know, looking back, that was a f***ed up thing to say. But it was what I knew at the time. It was part of that suck it up mentality. After Dan graduated from basic training in April of 2009, he eventually ended up in North Carolina, then on a ship off the coast of Africa, and then Okinawa, Japan, all far away from home and everyone he knew. That's another thing about the military. It's all over the globe on all seven continents, including Antarctica. You could be stationed 20 minutes away from home or a 20-hour flight away from everyone you know. All you have are the people around you in your unit, living, eating, working, partying, and even sometimes showering with the people in your unit is great for camaraderie. In combat, these aren't just your coworkers. They're the people you'd be expected to die for. We tend to think of military service members as coworkers, and we do not understand the depth of those bonds of love and trust those bonds are what protect people from despair. 
Doc Springer, the psychologist, says another constant of military life is having your entire world upended because orders got changed. You could be settling in for a three-year tour of duty in Japan, then get sent back stateside on extremely short notice, leaving all your friends, who are essentially your family, like that. They suffer from what I think of as a, a fundamental attachment wound when they lose that family and that whole set of conditions and environment that help them know who they are as people and what their place was in that society. And so it's a massive trauma just moving from the military back into civilian society. Those bonds equate to trust, just like you'd trust your siblings or your parents. So when there's abuse, like hazing, bullying, racism, sexual assault, any sort of thing that might traumatize a child at home can be equally traumatic to the service member. The military is a microcosm of society. Just like there are good and bad people in society, there are good and bad people in the military. Hazing and bullying and other abuses of power are part of certain chains of command in the military because they're in the natural array of human behavior. I think sometimes uh, we forget that you know, if abuses of power can happen in, in government settings, um, whether in our country or abroad, these kinds of things will happen um, in the military. And to the degree that we don't have oversight and accountability for these things, they can run rampant. Unlike the outside world, though, you can't just quit your job to get away from a toxic boss. I think the military is a, a particular society where certain people are imbued with a lot of power. If they are good men and women and good leaders, they can really form healthy, positive identities for those they lead. But when that is not the case, when you have somebody who is not a healthy person, when you have a toxic or a destructive leader or somebody who abuses their power, it can do extreme and long-lasting damage for those who are subjected to that. Because they're essentially can be like captives in that kind of a chain of command. A lot of people leave the military with trauma related to the environment they served in, not just from the horrors of combat. There is a sacred trust there that we hold with those who take the oath of service. And when that is betrayed, when they are hazed, bullied, or sexually assaulted, that should absolutely be a trauma that we should care a great deal about healing and putting resources behind. There'll be an entire episode that deals with sexual assault and harassment in the military. And we're not overblowing it. A 2011 study found that the typical woman serving in the military was more likely to be sexually assaulted by a fellow soldier than she was to die in combat. In 2018, a DOD report found that more than 20,000 members of the armed forces experienced a sexual assault that year. If you compare sexual assault that feels personal, that feels like you have to confront the perpetrator, maybe they're in power over you and your chain of command in the military, for example, that is a different healing journey than somebody who has combat trauma, which is generally not personal. And it might be horrifying or um, traumatizing, but it doesn't feel like a personal assault. It also doesn't pull in a lot of times the same kind of feelings of shame that people can experience after a sexual assault. So a lot of people come out of the military having experienced some sort of trauma. 
even if they were hundreds of miles away from the nearest combat zone. Those people also face physical danger, just in a different way. For instance, Oh, it's demanding. I mean, it's just physically demanding. Uh, that's part of the allure to it for a lot of people is like to get in shape and be a hunky dude or whatever you're looking for on the physical side of things. A lot of the physical injuries that lead to service-connected disabilities have nothing to do with combat, just the abnormal wear and tear on the body caused by military life. Whether you're carrying a 120-pound ruck, uh, doing a march every like every second week of the month with with the grunts, or if you're like me and you're carrying like 120-pound aircraft components around the flight line, you know some of these components are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, so you can't. You know, if you have to set it down, you have to set it down, but like, you're still lugging that shit. Even without combat-related injuries, sometimes the stress of military service takes its toll on the body. It's a little easier to bounce back when you're young, but you see these guys who have been in for 20 years, they're maybe 40 years old and they look like they're 60 because their body just isn't hanging as well as it used to and the demands are still there. There's this cultural thing in the military where you're supposed to tough out your injuries. Just like Dan told his roommate when she fell off her bike. It could always be worse. Just be a man and deal with it. And there's a suck it up mentality too. I mean, there are plenty of times I've sliced my hand open on a piece of safety wire. You know, I saw a bone in my finger from just a little piece of wire just sliced me wide open on the, on the ship deck, you know. And I just put a napkin around it and duct taped it and went back to work. Within the military subculture, rank is important and the hierarchy is strict and well-established. There are a total of 24 different pay grades. Doctors and healthcare providers usually enter the military as captains and majors, already way outranking the average junior enlisted service member. Including doctors and medical providers within those pay grades creates a barrier that most individual junior-ranking service members have a hard time breaking, even for the sake of their own health. They might be your doctor, but they're also a superior officer. And so if you come in as a doctor, kind of say to somebody in 10 different ways before the first word you speak, I outrank you, that's not going to be a relationship that many military service members and veterans are interested in pursuing. These quirks of military life sometimes keep people from seeking help. In my case, a sprained ankle when I'm 20, left untreated because I was afraid of looking weak, leads to debilitating arthritis when I'm 30, and I require treatment from the VA. A lot of people avoid wearing their earplugs when working on jets or shooting, because when you're 19, wearing earplugs makes you look weak. Then they turn 30 and need to get a hearing aid from the VA. There's a wide cultural gap between many of the healers who serve our military and veteran population and those they serve. Um, there's a huge trust deficit there. Part of this issue of why military service members don't seek help is because there are very few people that seem to be able to build the kind of trust with them that they have with their trusted docs in the military. This trickles over into civilian society more than you might think. A soldier returning from combat with PTSD is afforded a lot of grace by society. But a soldier returning with symptoms of PTSD after a sexual assault is often ignored or dismissed as weak. There is gatekeeping in society about what trauma counts. Um, people put sometimes combat trauma in a different category 
than all the other traumas that service members can experience. There is a lot of sexual assault, not just for women, but for men in the, in the military. Um, and this was something that once my patients trusted me, they opened up about hazing and bullying and sexual assault. There are abuses of power that can happen in certain chains of command, not across every chain of command, you know, but that can happen. Before you're allowed to leave the military, you have to attend a congressionally mandated transition assistance class. It's one week of classes. They go through a lot of the things that are available to you. They have VA reps come and tell you, you know, if you need medical assistance, the VA is here for you, which, of course, is kind of a controversial subject in its own. But the people want you to know that these resources are available. They tell you about how the GI Bill is going to work if you decide to go to school, whether it's trade school or college. It teaches how to apply for jobs, build a resume, manage your finances, a lot of practical stuff. What it's lacking, Doc Springer says, is a strong cultural transition. Transitioning from the military is about coming back into a society that often has very different rules of engagement. We don't give enough thought to the psychological dimension of returning from military service and reassimilating back into society. Springer and her colleague wrote a 400-page book on this very issue. And most of our military to civilian transition really focuses on updating your resume and getting your next job. We think it's uh, really the wrong question to be asking. You know, how do I get my next paid gig is not right as much as how do I um, support someone who just lost the family that they have been connected to for their entire time in service and trying to find out who they are and what their identity will be um, in a world that really doesn't operate by the same rules. So it's really a massive problem that required quite a lot of uh, work to really unpack that and hopefully support people through the psychological part of that journey. Every veteran has one thing in common. They served in the military. That is really the most universal similarity between every member of this highly diverse group. They all come from different backgrounds, different hometowns, with different belief systems. While they were in, they all had different jobs, different motivations, and different experiences. Some saw combat, most didn't. Some were stationed overseas, some never had to leave their home state. But universally, they were all part of the United States Armed Forces. And a lot of issues facing the veteran community, like addiction, housing insecurity, negative health outcomes, mental health problems, can be traced back to all of these aspects of military service. There was actually a study done of about 4 million service members, and it showed that there was no strong positive correlation between deployment to combat and suicide attempts. Um, and so we have this story in our minds that it's the trauma of the horrors of exposure to war that is the trauma. Our nation's war fighters are fighting, and that's just not the case. Um, it was so many other things for so many of the veterans I've served. Moral injuries, grief, survivor guilt, um, all of these things that we haven't focused as much attention on. So why is this important? 
Deepening society's understanding of the actual issues that most veterans face can help make the changes necessary to actually help them. I think average civilians care about veterans. They're interested in them. Um, they watch shows and movies. Um, they let them board planes first. There is a sense of uh, honor that we extend to our veterans, but I think for many veterans, they feel invisible. They feel like ghosts walking through a culture where people don't truly see them and truly understand their pain. Um, and so I think developing that deeper understanding of the kinds of pain that our veterans lock 10 levels in the vault is really important. Right now, a lot of what exists ostensibly to serve veterans is mostly just platitudes and lip service, Doc Springer says. Not for a lack of genuine care or concern, just cultural ignorance. And to stop using kind of empty phrases that feel like lip service, like thank you for your service, or oh, you're you know, a hero, or you're so resilient, are kind of things we've been socialized to say to veterans. But when I talk to the veterans in my circle, they actually don't really like those things uh, for different reasons. You know, um, when you call someone out as resilient, and they're truly suffering on the inside, you make it harder for them to get help because you've said, oh, you're a hero or you're resilient. We wanted to take place in our, or have a place in our generation's struggle in combat or whatever it was. Like you wanted to be a part of that. You wanted to look in your kid's history book later on when they bring home their homework and just be like, yeah, I was there. And uh, some of us were really there, and the majority of us, myself included, were kind of just support roles in the background. And in a society that emphasizes the role of combat, that leaves a lot of veterans feeling a little weird and out of place. It's always funny when people thank you for your service because you know they mean well and there's nothing wrong with them saying that, but you don't know how to respond. The thing I started saying was, uh, thank you for your support. It's something you can just blurt out. But I definitely don't, I don't, I, it's not that I don't appreciate it, it's just I don't have any contribution when people are like, oh wow, you're a hero. It's like, get the hell out of here with that. Like, I'm just a dude who got my free college, got to travel, and you know, thankfully I didn't lose anybody in my unit. On our next episode, women make up 10% of the armed forces. They've served in combat units since the early 1990s and have been officially fully integrated over the past few years, but they're still underrepresented in elite combat units. Their stories are all too often left out of the discourse, and they face some distinct issues as the biggest minority group in a male-dominated culture. Join us for a roundtable discussion with women veterans, Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds of Arizona, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. For more information about veterans' issues in Arizona, or to learn how you can help bring positive change to the community, visit our website, hearearizona.org, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at hearearizona. Support for Here Arizona comes from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust and from listeners like you. Thank you.
This episode was reported, produced, written, and hosted by Here Arizona senior producer Scott Bork. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thanks for listening.